States as a scholar of race and religion, a lot of the work that I've done has been to counter these stories that start with the protection of white female purity. So we can't allow desegregated schools because our girls will be raped by the black brutes. We can't allow X or Y because we have to protect the purity of our girls. For me, part of what uh, white evangelical purity culture does is to reinforce the validity of this being a God-given higher virtue or higher value for society. A large host of racial tensions and racial problems I think are really anchored in this sense that we have to value white purity overall. Touch podcast, Monique Moultrie. Hey, this is Nate, everybody. And this is Ryan. Race has come to play a role in this podcast from time to time. I'm just a regular old vanilla white guy. Nathan is a spectacular... Caramel colored. Caramel colored man. But two heterosexual dudes on this journey of exploration through spirituality and sexuality. At this point in history, we've been rolling along. We've been interviewing folks about purity culture. And both of us are very much aware that we've been having mainly a dominant culture conversation, mainly what is happening in white churches. And Nate, I think you would say your family has attended predominantly white churches. The term they have for us is, I think we're coconuts, you know? (laughs) Caramel on the outside, but we think we're vanilla. This episode is from a documentary project we were working on a couple years ago. It's an interview with Dr. Monique Moultrie. She's a professor of religious studies at Georgia State University, taught at a, in a residency at Harvard University. She is fantastic. And in this conversation with her, I'm completely blown away because at the end of the day, I'm just a dumb white guy. I am. And like, I mean, she has so much truth that I needed to hear. This is a conversation where I really have to check my privilege at the door and question all my assumptions about the role of the church and how purity culture works in the lives of people. As you listen to this interview, uh, be prepared to have... Whatever your preconceived notions about purity are, turned from its head back to its feet again. I'm Monique Moultrie, and I am an associate professor of religious studies at Georgia State, an associate professor of women's studies and religion, and African American studies uh, there at Harvard Divinity School. So my expertise is in um, religion, gender, and sexuality studies, and uh, with a particular emphasis on race. And I wrote a book called Passion and Impious, Religious Media and Black Women's Sexuality. So purity movements have you take a pledge to be virgin or to remain chaste until marriage. Piece of advice I would give to church leaders as an ethicist uh, and as a sexual ethicist, I emphasize agency 
and I emphasize that church leaders have to create space for uh, their congregants to make decisions and to be lovingly accommodated in their decisions. I say in the book and I say to my students in my classrooms that it has to be a freely given choice. If you go to vote and there's only one person on the ballot, you don't have a freely given choice. Uh, if, if you're told to be Christian means you only have this option, then you're not given a freely given choice. You're, you're following a, a dictate. The message of purity can be beneficial if it is self-chosen. And so what I hope to help students understand and what I hope people who read the book will get to from listening to the women that I interviewed is that for those for whom celibacy uh, was necessary, uh, it was greatly beneficial. They don't regret their decision to be celibate. Actually, celibacy was much more fulfilling for them. It served a purpose, not just because this is what I think Christianity means, but because I do want to be in a period of my life where I am focused most closely on um, adhering to the Bible. Or I do want to be in a period of my life where uh, God's Word reigns sovereign over all of my aspects of my life. Okay, then that makes sense. That is something that you can actually take a stance by. What I've seen in both the research and in my interviews is that persons who took the purity pledges because sort of the church van dropped them off at the conference, the weekend retreat, and everybody signed, so they did too, that they didn't feel the ownership of that. They did it because of peer pressure. Everyone said it was the right thing to do, but not because they personally chose it. And, and I want students to think about the reasons why they're making any decision, whether that's a sexual decision or you know, a decision on being a conscious consumer of media and popular culture. Uh, to think about it, not just do it, but to have a rationale for why they're doing it. There are major differences between the white evangelical purity movement and uh, communities of color participating in these movements. The quote-unquote quintessential black church, and I'm putting that in quotation, being a reference point to predominantly black uh, Christian denominations. One difference is black women marry much later in life. Purity movements have you take a pledge to be virgin or to remain chaste until marriage. And uh, for white evangelicals, marriage might be 24, 25. So you make this pledge at 13, 14, you've got about 12 years of sort of participating in that pledge, and then you're married. Uh, for black women, we tend to marry over the age of 45. That's our census demographic. Uh, we are the least married population in the younger demographics of all races. And so because they marry much later in life, we're talking about participating in a movement, not 12 years, but 30 years uh, while you wait for a husband to come along. And so uh, that often means that when black women do marry, they're past childbearing ages. And so the dynamic of, I want to be pure, but I also want to mother is a strong, factor because of their strong desire to mother. The difference uh, in these black movements and white evangelical movements, I've noticed a lot more of secrecy and shame in white demographics. The purity movements that I follow don't cast you out.
black evangelical movements um, really run is based on testimony. And so part of the rhetoric is you can only be saved by what you share. Uh, and so there is this real emphasis on telling everything. We can't hold you accountable if we don't know what you're going through. You can't simultaneously tell me to tell everything and then once I do say, oh, well, we can't have that in our group. These purity movements take you where you are. There is this emphasis on purity and virginity, and yet uh, most black churches, most black pastors will dedicate babies. There's a, a long history of baby dedication um, for African-American communities, and that's seen as this you know, wonderful time of the family coming together and blessing the child. And often uh, this is blessing a child that was created outside of a marriage. And so there's this juxtaposition of the church's very open stance against pre or extramarital sexual encounters, but at the same point understanding, hey, it kind of happens, and uh, not throwing you out of fellowship. Because lots of women, because of their strong desire to mother, go out, uh, they have relationships, they have a child, and then uh, they decide, I want to, quote unquote, live my life for Christ, and thus commit to this path of purity. Uh, so they come in uh, with children in a way that uh, I've not noticed in white demographics. Uh, but it only offers, or often only offers, one opportunity, one response. Just keep working the program. It's God's will. When I was going around doing my interviews for the book, um, one of my interviewers said to me, that she thought that's why black churches weren't the spaces where sexuality was being discussed, because if black women were really sexually free, uh, we'd take over and restructure the power structures of black churches. Uh, predominantly, black churches are historically um, filled with black women, majoritively filled with black women who are then under leadership of black men, uh, who are the senior pastors who then have these prescriptions of what one should do and what one shouldn't do. And so there was this sense that black male leadership doesn't want us to experience anything else. We see this in our contemporary uh, politics. Men's voices get to dictate what happens to women's bodies and, and they speak for uh, communities. Uh, and some of that is held to be biblically relevant. It's an umbrella image of the, the God-ordained structure where Christ is the head and then you have the pastor and then you have the husband and then you have the wife and then you have the children. And there's this sense of this is the perfect God-ordained hierarchy uh, and this is who gets to speak. And I, I see that replicated in, in churches as well where men tell women what they're to do with their bodies, how they're to dress. Um, how they should be in worship, uh, what they're allowed to do, where they're allowed to sit or stand. And so that started really long ago, um, probably was multiplied by biblical literalism, listening to the Bible and saying, oh, well, Paul said, these things are only the things that are allowed. But they're also putting that onto, they're multiplying that by this backstory. Uh, we also need to 
hold to these things? Why are women the ones who get these messages and not men about purity? Why aren't men expected to hold to this same standard? Uh, it certainly could be also possible for a man to need to be celibate uh, for his mental health, for uh, his own stability. I don't think men get those messages or even the encouragement that they're to, to do so. We have this culture of, well, boys will be boys, and then boys get to be men who will be men. And, and there isn't expectation that uh, the same thing is required of a man if this is biblically ordained then it's biblically ordained for the entire body of Christ and not just for women uh, and I, I think that there's strong pushback from men uh, because in a way that's them being controlled in the same way that they're able to control women's bodies hey get a vasectomy hey you should be sexually pure there's a strong pushback because men don't seem receptive to that type of messaging. And so there was this sense that black male leadership doesn't want us to experience anything else because it would be a challenge, a direct threat to their authority and their power structure. And so for example, one of the groups I follow, the Purity, uh, the Pinky Promise group, uh, they have a, a, a male equivalent called the Man Cave and they meet at the same time as the Pinky Promise movement. And literally it'll be a thousand women in a room and like 27 men. Like you can count them by number. Uh, and, and that is a true shame. Would you mind comparing and contrasting a bit between sort of white evangelical purity programs and movements and what has occurred in the African-American tradition? Absolutely. Um, so there are major differences between the white evangelical purity movement and uh, communities of color participating in these movements. One uh, large part of the difference is the history of hypersexualization of black women uh, and women of color. Put in, in layman's terms, because of the history of slavery and racism, there are stereotypes about black women being sexually available. Latino women, Asian women being sexually available to all and promiscuous. And so black churches post-emancipation were enforcers of moral codes. To take a claim of purity is to take a stance against what the dominant trope is. This again, hypersexual, always sexually available understanding that white America had about blacks uh, and women of color our success as a people outside of a religious space depended upon churches changing society's perceptions. Part of what uh, white evangelical purity culture does, it reiterates white femininity as the highest value. And so in a lot of ways, as a scholar of race and religion, a lot of the work that I've done has been to counter these stories that start with the protection of white female purity. So we can't allow desegregated schools because our girls will be raped by the black brutes. We can't allow X or Y because we have to protect the purity of our girls. Uh, and so for me, part of what uh, white evangelical purity culture does is to reinforce the validity 
of this being a God-given higher virtue or higher value for society. For me, white evangelical culture, purity culture has encountered, it hasn't come out and said, hey, this is a value because of our Christianity, not because whiteness is what we should be protecting, not because our white women's virtue is what we should die for and what we should fight wars for and what we should uh, keep democracies set up for. Uh, and, and that for me is really a deficit because it turns a, a blind eye, it becomes oblivious to the other side of what this movement represents in society. But I also think as it deals with white purity culture, white evangelical religious leaders have to be aware of the messaging that they're giving about what is valued. We're valuing uh, their future procreation, young girls and young boys, and not their gifts and talents. We're saying God fearfully and wonderfully made you and at the same time, a whole lot of restrictions on that creation, limiting the possibilities of that creation. So really speaking um, to church leaders to say, sort of think about the long road of what you're giving. What kind of future leaders do you want in your congregations? Do you want people who haven't been able to fulfill their full destinies because you've limited them at such a young age. And I think that the global church will be much better off if we have people who are self-agents, are motivated to be their best selves, uh, and are not restricted by their, their Christian understandings or their biblical uh, understandings of who God calls them to be. I think when I look at the women that I interviewed um, over time who no longer hold to purity culture, who have shed that as the way they should model their entire life. Uh, they talk about a freedom in Christ. Uh, one of the, my interviews, she talked about being free in Christ and her celibacy choice. And that freedom was for her the ability to choose what she was going to do. And at the same time, uh, when I spoke with someone else about what sexual freedom meant for them, now that they were no longer a part of a purity culture, they talked about being able to be peace at peace with their decisions and not feeling castigation, not feeling depression, not feeling guilt, not feeling shame about their body. For them, breaking free of sexual purity gave them an appreciation of their ability to join their physical flesh with another person um, and, and seeing that as God in the midst of. To get to liberation, to get to freedom, takes the willingness to take that first step, the willingness to ask questions and to be okay with wrestling uh, and to understand that God is still with you in the midst of those questions. In the everydayness of you trying to make a different path. 
Uh, and for me, every woman that I experienced while I was doing my interviews who identified themselves as being sexually free was someone who had taken an agential first step and said, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want better for myself. I want not to be in shame. I want not to have guilt. Uh, and, and that was the essential first step, sort of the awareness that there could be a different way of being. So what are you feeling right now? Are you as a vanilla white guy? You know, I just learned so much from her and it was really wonderful to be sitting, you know, across the table from her, listening to a perspective. I have, I, I wish I had heard, I wish I had heard in graduate school. I, I should have, the things that she says in this interview um, are things that every first year uh, seminary student, um, every undergraduate religious student, it should be like, the second day of seminary, if the first day is orientation, because it, it, it really is that important. When we shot this, Ryan is running the interview, following a through line that I can't put a finger on, but it's getting somewhere. Um, and then in the end of listening to these interview bites, I am kind of marveling at seeing your unique reaction to this. Uh, Dr. Moultrie says uh, many really powerful things in this interview with her and um, one of them is that um, freedom looks different for different people freedom looks different for different people and what and different people need to know that they're more than a small list of behaviors they're supposed to and not supposed to do and I and I just want to echo her her point, her message to ministers that when you reduce faith to a list of, of to a, for, a, a formula and you reduce um, sexuality to a list of things you don't do or um, on a particular timeline, this is when you can do this and this is when you can do that, that what you're really doing is you're inviting the whole person into community, into your church. You're, invi you're not just inviting you know, a disembodied head to be at your church. You're not just inviting one particular skill into your church. You really are saying that you are loved. The whole part of you all of you is loved and we want all of you here and we might not understand all the parts of you we might not um, agree with everything you've done but those sort of things are way 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 down on the list of a long list and what's at the top of the list is that you are a beautiful wonderful creation of God and we're gonna just love the shit out of you and I think that is for all churches that I have ever experienced or seen visited that is the thing that tends to be missing and it's how we end up having 
preacher, male preachers telling women what they can and cannot do, how they can and cannot look. It's how we end up with men who have been given an impossible list of mixed messages of about what masculinity is and it's how we end up just beating each other to hell over stupid shit like the color of the carpets and the color of the the hymnals and the height of the pipe organ and dumbass stuff like that <laughs> instead of just putting love number one. Oh my goodness oh my goodness whoa whoa i was not expecting that you're right man that's like it's not just like deconstructing racism it's like revival <laughs> there's like a love christ genuine love that ah oh. yeah like, oh. yeah if freedom to you means being celibate and not going from person to person and participating in hookup culture, then awesome. That's freedom. Practice right. it. Practice. Right. That is a wonderful spirituality. Mm. But oh, for like she said, for another person, if freedom means breaking free from an oppressive, controlling, secretive white sort of purity culture mm -hmm. and it means like loving yourself and accepting yourself and you know truly being able to be present with other people and not worrying about if, how far is too far then <sighs> if that's freedom for you then yeah. that's freedom and those both of those people can come to church or mm. come to community and be in community with each other and yes. and accept each other because you're going to love the human being that is when you're describing all these things. I'm just my like my, my muscles are easing, my shoulders are dropping. It's like a it's like a weight's being lifted. We any system that takes away our agency, mm. you know, if if the if it's a male preacher or female preacher, but usually a man up there who is trying to take away. Um, our ability to make decisions for ourselves and discern for ourselves and be um, be who we feel God has truly intended us to be, that system of control, I think, is, is going to be toxic. Because right. that leadership structure has to spend a lot of energy running around the community keeping everybody's sort of oh. keeping everybody on the same page their right. behavior on the same page and in or and in the attempt to control everybody's behavior trying to get everybody's thoughts and spirituality on the same page right instead yeah, of getting people who are different to play with each other you see how that how different that is yeah yeah it is it, just letting that love have its own effect and, and maybe there therein lies the secret of having something simpler than what we're doing now when we hold on with control and fear what a gift um, to have her share you know from her heart and from her research 
and from her experiences working with so many different people, uh, it, 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 it reminds me, I, I have a, my natural tendency is to be sort of come to conclusions really fast and it is a really good reminder to me to stop, take a breath and assume nothing about someone else's experience and just be like, you know what, today they are, you know, they are just putting one foot in front of the other just like me and there's a lot I don't understand um, but but I have to, you know, keep curiosity in the front and um, and and try my best to let love guide me and let all that that power control stuff like, you know, chuck it away Thanks for joining us on this episode of Touch Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or Patreon. Support this show. We'll send you a t-shirt. And uh, we really love all the people who have come together, who listen to this podcast and shared it. Um, share this episode. And also, you can email us at ryan at touchpodcast.com or nate at touchpodcast.com. And... Uh, you can uh, call us at the phone number that's on our website at touchpodcast.com. Our website got hacked, so it's, we're currently rebuilding it. But when it's up and running, you can give us a call at the number there. Leave us a message. And with your permission, we'll be happy to include your thought, message, or comment on the episode. We hope you're able to hear some of the amazing thoughts of our guests and to feel into new feelings, which you may not have felt before to get us into amazing spaces of healing, faith, connection, and sexuality.